We'll be in Ephesians chapter 2 today. And we'll be looking at verses 11 through 13. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. And as you get there, uh, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned, discord entered into the human world. Right? What once was harmonious broke out into discordant noise. And this extended not only uh, between man's relation to the world around him, right? We see that, for instance, in the curse that God delivers to man, right? The, the earth is going to produce fruit, but it's going to be through toil, through hard work, through thorns, through sweat, through blood. But it's not only man's relation to the world around him, but it's also man's relation to man, right? Humanity's relation to humanity is discordant because of sin, right? Husband and wife lived without shame, without arguing, without questioning of faithfulness or selflessness or love. But then sin entered the world and so too did separation, right? Genesis 3, 6 through 7 reveals the nature of this fall, right? Genesis 3, 6 through 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And that may be such a strange thing for us to hear. They knew that they were naked. Well, didn't they know that before? No, not really. Not in the sense that the scripture means it here, right? They, they realized that something had changed about themselves and separation took place. The two who were one flesh suddenly were torn. Uh, and that separation still haunts us to this day, right? Sin still does this to the day. It, it creates discordant relationships. And whether that's between spouses, whether that's between family members, whether that's between friends, uh, whether that's between church members, right? Separation enters and discord enters. We fast forward in the book of Genesis to the Tower of Babel, and we see again this driving force of separation. This split between mankind was widened, in the confusion of the languages. We fast forward to the book of the Exodus and we find once more a distinction being made. There is now the people of God and there are those who are not the people of God. And this last separation continued until the time of Christ. And that's what we come to today in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We find Paul writing to the believers in Ephesus about something else that has changed in their coming to Christ. And so today I want us to see that the blood of Christ brings unity to God's people. The blood of Christ brings unity to God's people. So let us read the scriptures today. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. 
This is the word of the Lord, and so receive it as such. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, if you remember the first part of the book of Ephesians chapter 2 is this contrast between the Christians as they were before they became Christians and what they were now, right? So Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, he says, you once were these things and what they once were was following the course of this world. They were following after Satan. They were uh, children of wrath, children of disobedience. Uh, They were dead in their trespasses and sins. But God, because of his great mercy, so that's who they were, but God, because of his great mercy and because of the love with which he loved them, changed them. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, and through Jesus's atoning work on the cross, through his perfect holy life, he forever changed the saints. And the basis for that being changed, right, is not located in the ability and the prominence and the worth of the Ephesians, but is located in the grace of God, right? For by grace you've been saved, right? By grace. It was solely of the grace of God. So they once were something, and now they're something very different. They once walked in trespasses and sins, and now they walk in good works. And Paul has written this to them to show the glory of God and the reality of their new life in Christ. And that's what we come to today, right? We see another aspect of this. Paul is highlighting another change that has taken place in the lives of the believers in Ephesus. All this to the glory of God. So let's see first, making separation. Making separation in verses 11 and 12. Making separation. And it begins, therefore... Uh, therefore and so this means paul is making an argument he has said something before and now he's giving a reality that stems from that argument right so that's what that word therefore is it's a it's a logical argument that paul is making so therefore because god has saved us by his grace and he has purposed He has created, he has ordained us in Christ for good works. The first thing that we ought to do in response to God's grace towards us is remember, right? Therefore, remember. Paul is calling Gentile Christians to remember, to remember who they were, to remember what they were. And why does Paul want his readers, and we think here that the Ephesian church was probably predominantly Gentiles, right? So predominantly not Jewish persons. Why does he want them to remember these things? Why does he want them to remember, for instance, back up in verses one and three, how they once walked in sin and followed after Satan? 
Well, because we need to be reminded of these things often. Uh, the first reality of that is because we become prideful in ourselves if we don't remember these things. And the second is that it brings glory to God, right? And remembering these things, we bring glory to God. Pride is such, and our sin nature is such, that it can be easy for us to think that God owes us something. Right? We can think that we are owed an easy life, comfort and security, or any number of other rewards. We can begin to think that we had something to do with our own salvation. That God needed us. So we must always be killing our pride. We must put it to death. And how do we do that? We remember. Right? We go back and we remember what it is that we were before we were in Christ and what it is now that we are in Christ and what changed in between. Who did the work of salvation in us? Did we do it? No, right? Paul has argued time and time again here in the first two chapters of Ephesians. We haven't gotten very far in it, but every time we look around, what do we see? God did this. God did this. And we'll see that again today in our passage, by the way. But we have to be killing our pride. We have to remember these things. And the second reason we need to be reminded of them is because we need to bring glory to God for them. Right? We need to bring God the glory due his name. We need to remember where we came from to understand how gloriously good God has been unto us. Now, has God been good? Well, let's continue in our verse and see, right? So he says, he writes to them, look here in, in the scriptures. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. And so let's stop here and just say, let's remark that this is not natural for us to think of ourselves in this way. Uh, just like we wouldn't think of ourselves in the same way that Paul describes us in Ephesians uh, 2, 1 through 3 that we probably would not describe ourselves before our coming to Christ if you had asked us before we believed in Christ and someone came up to us and said, do you believe that you're following after Satan? Do you realize that? Do you think that you're a child of wrath? If someone asked us that in our pre-converted state, pre-regenerated state, what would we say? You're crazy. What are you talking about? Who are you and why are you here? Right? That's not natural for us to think these ways. And the same thing here, right? It's not natural for us to think of ourselves as Gentiles, as pagan, as heathen, as people in the flesh, as people called the uncircumcision. The Ephesians wouldn't have described themselves this way. Right? They probably would have said something like this. I'm not abnormal. I'm normal. You're abnormal. Right? We don't think of ourselves uh, as out of step or as outsiders. But we do so of other people, of their ways, of their cultures. For instance, I'll give you a for instance of this. Just to give you an understanding of what Paul here is talking about, the perspective that he's talking about. Do you consider Asian culture 
And I know when I say that, that that is a very broad term, but I'm just going to say Asian culture. So whatever you think of when you think Asian culture, and let me go ahead and tell you, it is not the Chinese buffet, right? That's not Asian culture. But anyways, uh, when you think of Asian culture, is Asian culture normal or foreign? Is it something normal and natural or is it exotic? Well, from our perspective, it is exotic, right? But just here's the perspective that I want you to adopt. And, and so that way we can understand what's going on in this passage. Consider that approximately 2.8 billion people live on the Asian continent. So when I say Asian culture, that is a very broad term. That's a lot of people. There's a lot of different types of Asian cultures. But anyways, 2.8 billion people. That's about 33% of the world's population. In comparison, the percentage of the United States population in comparison to the total of the earth is about 4%. So if you think about it this way, is you, the culture of the United States is that normal or exotic? Well, if you just go population-wise, we're the, we're the ones that are outsiders. We're not part of the majority group of the world. That's elsewhere, not us. Now, I do know, I realize, I recognize, right? the United States has an outsized influence on the culture of the world. Uh, between technology and manufacturing and all those kinds of things, well, we do drive, we have an outsized influence. We may have 4% of the population, but we bear more than 4% of the cultural output of the world. So under, I, I, I will concede that, right? But what we have to understand is that there, if we adopt a different perspective when we say, well, considering the population, the total population of the world, we're a minority. We're a small part of the whole. And that's the perspective that Paul is trying to open up and drive to the Gentile believers in Ephesus. Because here's what he wants them to adopt. He says, right, you were Gentiles in the flesh. You weren't God's chosen people. You were called the uncircumcision. And we might uh, insert here instead, you were unclean. You were impure. You were these things in comparison to what? Those who are called the circumcision. Or the New American Standard uh, translates this section here, the so-called circumcision. This is the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. And again, so who's Paul referring to here? The Jewish people, right? Paul's saying that, the Jewish people. And what's significant about the Jewish people in comparison to the Gentiles? Well, Exodus 19, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, tell us the difference. Listen to this. God speaking, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And God says to Moses, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So what's God say there in Exodus? Moses is told to go out to the people and to declare to them the Lord's intentions. The people of Israel are to be the people of the promise. They are the ones to inherit the promised land. They are the ones to whom God swore to give the promised land to their fathers. They are his nation, a treasured possession. They hold a unique status that no other people's no other nation, no other group of peoples holds, at least certainly in the time of Moses and in the Old Testament. Now we can get into that conversation about, is that still true today in the book of, uh, as, as Christ comes and in the book of Ephesians, and I'll just go ahead and give you a hint, I'm not going there today. But it's a, it's a worthy discussion to have. But, if you're not of Jewish descent, and I'm not talking about fractional interests here, I'm talking about if you're not of Jewish descent, then verse 12 applies to you. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Do you see those five things there? Those five things Paul wants the people in Ephesus, the Christians in Ephesus, he wants us today to remember. Now in verse 12, depending on your translation, it may or may not start with the word remember. That's not there in the Greek, but our English translators sometimes reinserts that depending on your translation because it helps us remember what the verb is. What is Paul trying to get us to do? So it's an aid there for us. And, and again, we, what is Paul prompting us to do? He wants us to remember. So let's consider these things he puts there. These five things, let's consider them. We were separated. We were alienated. We were strangers. We were without hope. We were without God. We can confess what Colossians 1.21 confesses. Colossians 1.21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That is who we were. Of all the realities that we need to remember, and notice that Paul fronts this first, the most important thing is that we were separated, we were separated from the Messiah. Uh, Christ being the Greek version of the Hebrew word for Messiah. We were separated from the Christ, we were separated from the Messiah. And consider this one occasion in the Gospels that highlights this reality in Matthew 15, Matthew 15, verses 22 to 26. In Matthew 15, 22 through 26, here comes this woman. This woman comes in desperate need. Uh, Jesus is in not a Jewish area, so we shouldn't be surprised that Gentiles show up. And notice this here, Matthew 15, verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. 
He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So I just pause there. I'll tell you the end of that here in a moment. But So here is this woman in desperate need. She's an outsider. She's a Gentile. She's the uncircumcision. She is not a part of God. She is separated from Christ. She was not an Israelite. And Jesus acts seemingly quite cold towards her. And indeed, this last word there, that word dogs, that was a phrase that the uh, Jewish people used of Gentiles because dogs were unclean. By the way, dogs are unclean. Right? Dogs, dogs were unclean. They, they, they were impure. So this was like a, a way to talk about people that demeaned them. But you know what? In a sense, uh, it was true. The Gentiles are dogs. By the way, that's you. And Jesus uses this term, and I don't believe that Jesus held the same view that the Jews did. Uh, and maybe what is going on in the background here is that the disciples knows the disciples come to him and beg him and say, uh, send her away, shut her up, get her out of here. Deal with her, Jesus. You're the only one that's going to be able to deal with her. We've tried. She's crazy. She won't stop pounding us. There you go. That was a fun pun there for you. I didn't mean to, but you can have that one for free. Right? Get her away, Jesus. I don't think Jesus held the same view. Even though he says these things, he says these things for the benefit of the disciples. Right? He tells the disciples, she, he tells her what the disciples want to hear from the mouth of Jesus. But what does he do? When this woman says, uh, responds to a statement about oh, the, we don't give to the dogs what is for the people. Uh, she says, but even the dogs get the scraps from the table. And Jesus responds and says to her, how great your faith. He doesn't say that of the Jewish people often. Instead, he says, how little your faith. So he says, how great your faith. Go your daughter as well. So at any rate, what, what do we see here, right? That, that there's this re, very, very real issue that as Gentiles, we were separated from the Messiah. There was a barrier. There was a wall. We were alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel. Uh, that means that we're Commonwealth there. It could be citizenship. Like we were outside the nation of Israel. We were, and what does that mean? Not just in the sense of, well, we just weren't citizens there. We weren't part of the blessings that came to the people of Israel by virtue of them being the people of Israel. When we went through the book of Hosea, right, we see this. That the people in Israel had blessings from God, had grace and mercy that God did not extend to other nations. Now, his mercy has limits, right? His patience has limits. And in Hosea, we see what those limits are. But even the book of Hosea is a message of mercy if the people would only listen, but they're not given ears to listen. Right? So, so alienated, separated, 
not just from the commonwealth, the, the good uh, part of being part of the people of Israel, but strangers to the covenants of promise. Uh, we were outside the Abrahamic covenant in that sense. We were outside the Davidic covenant, right, which ultimately culminated in the coming of the Christ. That we were outside of those things. We were strangers to them. We didn't know about them. We had no hope. The only hope that we had is maybe for a short life and then eternal suffering. That was the hope that we had. We were without God in the world. We were alienated. And again, it's not natural perhaps for us to think think this way about ourselves. We don't Think of ourselves as outside of the hope of God, but that's what we were. If God didn't intercede, if God didn't change things, then we would be lost and without hope. And again, here in America, it may be difficult for us to feel this, but don't mistake that there are vast numbers of people who have never heard the name of Jesus. And if they hear about Jesus, they would identify with what Paul is writing to the Ephesians here because they were without God. They have no hope. It's a a little bit different context for us here in America because it's hard to go quite anywhere without hearing the name of Jesus and whether that's in curse or in blessing, by the way, right? But there are scores of people, there are millions and billions of people who, if nobody intercedes, will die outside of the hope of Christ. And we might ask again, what is their present hope? Well, the wrath of God, Ephesians 2, 3. But God breaks into a hopeless situation and gives the light of revelation. Right? Paul describes here the difference in the situation between the Jew and the Gentile. And he does that also in his letter to the Romans, right? The letter of Romans has a lot of this back and forth between Jew and Gentile. Who has the benefits? Who doesn't have the benefits? And we could trace that thought through there, but I want us to see it most uh, prominently in Romans 9, 4 through 5. Romans 9, 4 through 5. Listen to how Paul describes the situation of his kindred in the flesh, the situation of the Jewish people. Right, Romans 9, 4 through 5, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Right? And realize that if you're not an Israelite, then you don't have these benefits, right? What hope did you have? None, right? But God, being rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, changed everything. Now, let's go back to this issue once, uh, back in the end of verse 11. Uh, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. 
I just want to touch upon that to say that even Paul here is tipping his hand. He is pointing to a deeper reality, right? There are those who may have an outward sign of circumcision, but that's not what's most important. We get this reality more explicitly stated by Paul in the book of Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, 28 and 29. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Or indeed, we could go back even further before Paul to the book of Deuteronomy. God called his people to something more than an outward sign of circumcision. It was never about observing outward signs alone. It was always about the inward reality expressed by an outward sign. By the way, isn't that a lot about what we say about baptism? Right? It's an outward expression of an inward reality. If there is no inward reality, when you go through the baptismal waters, it doesn't do anything. Let me just underscore that, right? Baptism does not save you. It cannot save you. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. If there's no inward reality, it doesn't mean anything. You just got a little cleaner, I guess. But look at Deuteronomy 10, verses 15 and 16. Deuteronomy 10, 15 and 16. Listen to this. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day. Right? We'll pause there and say, this is what we're talking about here in Ephesians 2. Verse 16, going on in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Right? God says, God's command to them through the prophet Moses is inward reality. Your heart has to change. It's not merely about outward forms. So ultimately, the issue of near or far here in Ephesians 2 is about one's closeness to the promises or distance therefrom. And the Jewish people had much benefit in their Jewishness. Right? They had the promises of the covenant. They had, they had promises. They had covenants. They had God. Who else did God speak to of all the nations of the earth? Who else did God speak to? Who else could listen in and understand who God was and is, and is to be, and what he has done. Only the Jewish people. He didn't go to the Egyptians, although he did show his power to the Egyptians, right? He didn't go to the Philistines. He didn't go to the giants in the Philistines, right? He didn't go to anyone else but to the Jewish people. They had benefits and blessings by virtue of their being chosen by God. God's chosen people, Israel, were God's chosen people. And because of that, they were blessed with loving kindness, steadfast love, has said. 
And we see this in so many shapes and forms throughout the Old Testament. But I'll share one that's mine and Jack's favorite out of Malachi 3.6. Malachi 3.6. What distinguishes the Jewish people from everybody else? Listen to this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. One of the benefits that the Jewish people had that other nations did not was God's mercy. And understand that there were nations that God did consume. Can you go visit the Philistine nation today? How about the Canaanites? What about the Edomites? And I'm not saying that there's not any lineage that descends from their lines, but there are some lines that have been blotted out from the face of the earth, and there is nobody in existence. Go, go back and read through some of those stories in the Bible. And that's even true of some of the Israelites, right? Where God says, I'm going to blot you out. There will be no descendants from your line. There are few nations today that are still in existence, that were in existence before the time of Christ. Why is there a nation of Israel today? Because God does not change, and he does not consume them. And again here, uh, we, we have this mystery of what this means under the, the new covenant in Christ. Uh, Romans 11 dives into that a little bit. And again, I'm going to go ahead and say I'm going to open that can of worms and then say you can have at it because I'm not going to go into that. That's a discussion for another day. There, there is too much there and we don't have time for that this morning. But understand that there is a mystery here about God's people Israel. And what we have is a separation. And what that's what Paul wants them to remember is that there was this great separation that stood between them and God. Ultimately, right? God. They were separated from Christ, verse 12 says. There's a distinction. But let's see next, unmaking separation. So verses 11 and 12 are about making that separation. Let's look at verse 13 and see how it's unmaking separation. And the scripture says here, right? But now in Christ Jesus... And let's always remark that Christ changes everything, right? The coming of Christ changed humanity forever. And for all those who call upon his name, they are indelibly changed, irreversibly changed. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were or formerly or used to be were far off, right? You who once were far off, separated, alienated, strangers, without hope and without God, you who once were these things have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. The King James says are made nigh. If you want to go a little bit old, older and poetic. And notice the language of and this is how it's translated in the ESV, right? Have, have been brought near 
that this is in passive voice. And what's that mean other than like to make you scratch your head when it comes to some, some kind of English grammarian uh, diagrams or something or other? Well, let's think about this. This language is in passive voice, meaning someone else did it to us. Now, was it the Jewish people who did it to us? Were they like looking over the wall and saying, we want some friends, come join us? No. And that it's passive, we didn't do it either. All right, we weren't looking and saying, man, it looks like a lot of fun over there. Who did this? Who has brought us near? God. God did this. Christ Jesus did it. It is through the work of God that we who were once outside of his promises are brought near to them. We who once walked in death, walked in trespasses and sins, are now brought to life and made to sit with Christ in glory. How was this change accomplished? The scripture tells us here, look at it. It's by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1, 19 through 22. Colossians 1, 19 through 22. For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It is in Christ whom the fullness of God dwells that all things are reconciled, that peace is made in his body by his death through his blood. And now if you are in Christ, what Colossians tells us is you will be presented to the Father as holy and blameless and above reproach. Are you holy? Are you a saint? If you are in Christ, then his blood makes you so. So marvel at this, right? Exalt God for this. Give him glory for this. Because brothers and sisters, do you realize how low an estate you held before your coming to Christ? That's what Paul wants the, the Gentiles in Ephesus to understand. Of all the peoples of the earth, the Ephesian Christians were the least likely to be saved. They were outside of God's promises. They didn't have God's word. Remember that before you were in Christ, you were without hope and without God. And your only hope before God was for his wrath to be poured out on you. Your only hope was that your suffering in this life would be outweighed by an eternal weight of suffering to come. You were uncircumcised in flesh and in heart. You were dead, but Christ died. He shed his blood 
and brought you, if you are in Christ, near to God and to his people. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, Hebrews 9, 11 through 12 tells us, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. If you are in Christ, then an eternal redemption has been secured for you. If you are in Christ, Though you were once separated and alienated from him and from the Father, he has brought you near. Though you were once outside of the promises of God, you now find that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. So what does this mean for you now? Right? Well, one thing that's in view in this passage is that it brings unity to God's people. This is true between Jew and Gentile, and it's also true between Gentile and Gentile. Understand that there is something deeper that joins believers in Christ, even though they may come from backgrounds most apt to separate them. Genealogy does not divide for the Christian. It does not matter if you are Jewish, Chinese, African, Spanish, Guatemalan, or American doesn't matter geography does not divide for the christian it matters not if you are a citizen of the united states of america if you are a citizen under the british crown if you are a citizen of south africa or anywhere else our citizenship is with god we're sojourners on this earth together Age is not a point of discrimination for the believer. What does Jesus say for the little children? Suffer them not that they should come to me. Don't, don't prohibit them from coming near, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Or, as Paul writes to Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth, but be an example. And if you are wizened and gray... There is need for you in the body of Christ. Language and culture is not a separation point for the saints. We may struggle to understand someone who speaks Spanish or German or Mandarin or Bantu. They may worship in ways that we do not. All right, they, may, they may prefer all contemporary. They want to be on the cutting edge of music and song. Or they may never stray from singing the book of Psalms. There are some who are so convicted that they should not sing anything that is not scripture. And so they sing only Psalms. By the way, we should sing Psalms. We did so today. I don't know if you, you, you can go back and look and see which one it was. Right, but it's these details, they're not unimportant. Language and culture is not unimportant but they don't make for points of alienation as it was before. Socioeconomic class does not create a barrier for the people of God. Whether you are rich or poor, all are the same in Christ Jesus. We're called to 
realize that in the book of James, right? James writes, don't show partiality. Why would you show partiality to the rich person who persecutes you? He writes. And may the rich bear in mind, and by the way, that's us. Here in America, that's us. I know we may not be the richest person in America, but that's still us in comparison to the grand, the perspective of the world, right? Again, going back to that issue of perspective, that's us. But may the rich bear in mind that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And may we confess that it is only by God's grace that we are saved. And indeed, the prayer of Christ in John 17 ought be on our lips and in our minds and hearts. John 17, verses 20 and 21. John 17, 20 and 21. Jesus prays this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And to what end does Christ pray that we would be all one as he is in the Father and the Father in him? That the world may believe in Christ Jesus. So let's bring this in tight and consider what this means for us here today. Disunity within Redeeming Grace Fellowship does not bring Christ's glory. We will have to work hard in ourselves and amongst ourselves to not let the evil one divide us. We want to bring glory to God, bring praise and worship to Christ, and how we interact with one another matters deeply to that end. Because our unity, or lack thereof, is a testimony to a watching world. And by the way, unity does not mean conformity. It doesn't mean that we'll all dress the same. So let's go ahead and take off the cult hat, right? We're not all dressing the same. It doesn't mean we all think the same about everything. We can have divergent opinions. We can think uh, that maybe we should sing more contemporary music and we can think that we should sing more traditional music. But we ought to think the same way about Christ in the church. We ought, as Paul writes in Philippians 2.5, Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He goes on and he says, who does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself? We ought, verses 3 and 4 of the same chapter in Philippians, we ought do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's our call. And by the way, if we want to be unified, we want to strive for the unity that we are called to in Christ, that's part of how we do it. And we could go on and on. And we will as we walk through the book of Ephesians, right? As Paul writes this, the truth of the work of Christ changes everything. Changes how we relate to one another. The blood of Christ brings unity to God's people. But understand this, this unity can only be had amongst God's people. 
What we are talking about here in Ephesians 2, what we consider from these words of Paul to the saints in Ephesus, this only applies to God's people. Paul could write what he wrote here because the blood of Christ had changed the Ephesians. But if you are not in Christ, you are still far off. You are outside of the promises and the blessings of God. You are without hope. And again, you may not consider yourself that way. You may not describe yourself that way, but you can only truly understand who you are if God changes you. As it stands, you are dead and you are under judgment. You stand condemned because of your sins, because of all the evil things you think and say and do before a holy God. Those things condemn you. And there's no amount of good that you can do. There's no amount of penance that you can do to change your fate before God. It'll be as the psalm that we read earlier in the service. If you were to take us to account God for our sins, who could stand before you? And the answer is clear. None. Period. But Christ Jesus... Jesus stepped out of heaven and came to this place. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was raised in a place of no significance. He came to do his father's will, and he did. He was obedient in all things, always. And in this way, Jesus lived the holy and perfect life that you cannot, although you should. Although that is what you were first created for. That is what God commands you to do. Jesus came for a purpose, though. He didn't come to walk around for a few years, say some really nice things, and then pass off into obscurity. He came to save his people from his sins, from their sins. He came to free the captive. He came to proclaim the good news to the poor and the poor in spirit. He came to die. Jesus Christ took up his cross, shed his blood to cover the sins of his people. He offered himself as a perfect and holy sacrifice. He bore the wrath of God. He died and was buried to secure an eternal redemption for his people. But he didn't stay dead. He rose victorious from the grave. He defeated death and sin. The grave couldn't contain him. And in his resurrection life, we who believe in him have the hope that is the assurance of things not seen that we too will raise from the grave. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he now intercedes for the sake of his people. He is always at work, and he is awaiting the time when the Father tells him and sends him forth to return to this place and call his people to his side, where we will be with him forevermore. And you can join him there, friend. You can be reconciled to God. But you must confess your sins. You must admit the truth about who you are before God and your need of his work and forgiveness. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And if you call upon him, if you plead with him, he can save you. He will save you. Jesus says that all who come to me, I will no wise cast out. And so this day, trust in Jesus. Look unto Christ Jesus, and you will come to know the marvelous work of God that takes people who are separated, alienated, and strangers 
and brings them near and makes them children of the living God. Let us pray. So, Father God, we pray this day. God, we pray for those who are still alienated and separated. We pray for those who are outside of the promises of the scripture. Father, who do not understand what the blood of Christ has done for them. God, we pray that you would give, uh, give them understanding. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit to regenerate and renew them. God, that you would open their eyes to see, their ears to hear, their minds and hearts to understand and believe and confess Jesus. Father, we pray that our words, we who believe in Christ, that our words would be clear and bold to proclaim the message of reconciliation to a world that needs to be reconciled unto you. And Father God, we thank you for the wondrous work that you have done in Christ, that you saved us who were outside of the promises, that you saved us who were outside of the covenants and you made a new covenant and you called us in Christ to that covenant. And you did such wondrous work You gave such grace, oh God, such grace to save us and to seat us in glory with Christ. Father, we confess that we are unworthy recipients of your grace, that none can be worthy of receiving your grace. So Lord, be glorified in us, we pray. Father, be praised in us. God, help us to go into this community that is dead in its sins and trespasses. Help us to preach boldly the good news of Christ. So we pray in the name of our only Lord, whom we pray comes to, to redeem us, uh, to, to, to call us out of the grave and into the sky. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.